no my hi to my my name is jeremy and this is the maximum institute podcast today i'm sitting here with julian wood our senior researcher at maximum institute to dig into the ideas and issues that sit behind the last four years of what he's been doing here as a researcher Coming into Maxim Institute after long stints, working as an economist in the Department of Labor during the Clark government, and then working on a business in rural China, Julian is our resident, well, prophet of doom, I would say. <laughs> I would say that because he has a knack for starting to think and work on things that are about to explode uh, into major national political issues within about six months to 12 months. Whether it's news stories about the housing crisis, charging a tourist tax to pay for infrastructure in our regions, or concerns about the affordability of New Zealand's super and talkback chatter about immigration, Julian's work over the last four years has sat at the intersection of some of the most difficult, long-term problems that occupy our national consciousness. So Julian, welcome. What does it feel like uh, to be a harbinger of doom? I actually uh, really enjoy it, personally. Um, <laughs> what is it they say about economists? Well, it depends entirely. If you're talking about econometrics, then I would say the two key terms there are con and tricks. I've heard that e economics is the dismal science. Oh, it is the dismal science, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah. It's very hard Hence to... the gloom. Yes. Yeah. I had a professor once that had a newspaper that said, good times ahead, says economists, and I think it's the only time in his career he'd seen an economist saying such a thing. So, yes. Yeah. Well, last month we released your fourth research paper, A Welcome That Works, which looks specifically at New Zealand's migration settings. But I kind of want to start back a little bit um, when you first to when you first joined us as, a, as an economics researcher. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that you started then, um, which led to your first paper, Growing Beyond Growth, looking at regional development, why it was that Maxim Institute and you particularly started investing in these ideas of regional development? Yeah, I mean, I think Maxim had been on a journey there where place was becoming more important and there was a sense that actually in the national dialogue we had moved into net benefit arguments and the big picture but we're forgetting or starting to okay hold on <laughs> i'm going to perform a little role of being a, a translator here or, or demanding translation when you say more concerned with place and would you say net benefit arguments yeah so can you just like unravel that a little bit <laughs> Regional development is about, I'm going to use another word, spatial impacts. So this is the impact that a national level policy can have differently in different places. So uh, migration rules, for example, why don't we get concrete? So I think New Zealand's the only country in the world where migration has led the Reserve Bank to adjust its interest rate or, or the official cash rate. Right. Um, simply because what was going on in Auckland meant that the the overall economy was overheating but people in the South Island weren't experiencing that growth but now were facing a higher interest rate because of what was going on in Auckland. So there was this national decision that, that was at a national level but was being felt very differently in different parts of the country and, and that's I think something that Maxim was starting to catch on to that actually we need a way of uh, understanding the local story a bit better. Tapping into the idea that um, there is a New Zealand economy Yep. But actually, there's also a, a Dargaville economy, and yes. there's a Christchurch economy, yes. and an Auckland economy, and, and even in some ways, there's a there's a Remuera economy and a Drury yep. economy. Yeah, and so the way we design our policy is often at that centralised Wellington level, and we're we're aiming for the national good. Looking at averages. Looking at averages across the country, when actually they can be experienced in, in very different ways in very different locations. Mm. And so, when you started looking at like regional development, and as an economist, how do we how do we actually do right by all parts of New Zealand so that people in all parts of New Zealand can actually have a chance at a, a good life and, and flourishing and, and succeeding? And not just people, but also towns, like the, the different different places in New Zealand. Um, and I guess I've heard you talk before about how the, the, the Māori connection to place is actually a, quite a distinguishing feature of New Zealand um, and one that probably needs to have a bit more role in our conversations around whether or not we let places die, for instance. Yeah, and there's, a, and there's a, some really good New Zealand research out there on this. And too often we hear this average story that, you know, you're, the average Māori person looks like the average non-Māori when it comes to mobility, for example, how they move around for jobs and things like that. When you dig into that, the research in New Zealand basically says, well, actually, no, that's more nuanced than that. If, if a Māori person is living outside of its iwi or hapu grouping, they're actually way more mobile than the average New Zealander. Mm. But as soon as they are then centred or come back to their community and reside in their sort of ancestral home, 
they, they're a lot more sticky. So there's these nuanced stories that lie behind the average that we start to need to, to, get to unpick if we're going to understand the good life in a particular place. Yeah, because well, I think good is a really like really key word to get there because actually there is there is a good for someone um, to be found in their in the home of their culture and in the home of their ancestors and it is you know like if you think about it in terms of a, t- a typical kind of economic view of you know labor movements and hey if there's not a job where you are then you should probably move to a place where there is jobs and so and 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 you almost view it as like as long as you can get a house and your family can move with you and you can find a good school then that's fine like you know you should just go to where the job is but actually having an understanding of what that sort of um, cultural displacement and I think you know we've seen it in terms of the the movement of uh, many um, Maori to urban urban locations what it was in the 50s and 60s 70s yeah the loss and what has happened since then for Maori the loss of language and loss of connection to family and in many ways purpose as well what's it been like I guess getting into that uh, as an economist and having to kind of make arguments around well, actually, we, we should be respecting this. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, debate to get into because the classic standard um, economic argument is, is typically built around mobility, that labour is mobile and should move to where the opportunities are. That serves you at, at one level, it serves you very well, and you can see how efficient that solution might be from a mathematical perspective. But we have to remember that people's lives are far, are far deeper than 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 sort of just the economic. There are the social and cultural aspects to our lives, which are fundamentally important. And that, and that, if if you're having trouble connecting with us, another way to think about it is how many people move overseas for jobs. Mm. But when they when they start to raise their family, what do they do? A lot of them return back to New Zealand at that stage. Why? Because there is something inherently beautiful and good about your history and the way you were raised, and you want to replicate that within your family. And so there is this this global story which actually replicates sort of a, a national story in some respects, that there is a beauty to be found in, in location and in, in place. Unpicking that, typically economists will sort of decamp into two, two sides, one which is spatial and, and one which is this, this more classic story. The thing that I found really interesting in that is even people who advocate for the spatial know and understand the risks of that type of policy. It is a high-risk type of policy to... To, to start. So and by into. spatial, advocating for spatial, you mean? Different policies are for different places. Right. So finding a local solution to a local problem and saying, hey, actually, if we're going to make this story important, this local story important, we need to find a different type of solution. You immediately start to get into um, high risk and often political or politically motivated spending on behalf of the government. Mm. Um, and, and we've seen that throughout New Zealand's history, right? It's not a current. This is not. I'm gonna. And I'm gonna keep going here for a little bit. If you if you'll give me license, just there is this notion with the provincial growth fund, for example, that this is a political spend. And I would say yes, there are there are great risks around that. But equally, you can look back into the 1970s in New Zealand, and you would say, hey, what was the economic argument for Marsden B up in up up north? You know, it was a similar. Yeah, well, it's it's it's, it's that entire story sort of being repeated in New Zealand that actually as soon as you start to dive into policy um, or spending money in a particular place you really have to constrain that political spend because that is the most high risk element of it. I'm assuming by constrain you don't mean just constrain it for the sake of constraining it but constrain it with parameters that dictate what a good spend is that's not just in the hands of the politicians who are wanting to make it. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to do this so that you win an election, basically. If, if you're spending money to win an election, then that's just going to give poor outcomes for everybody. Um, if you are then removing that element, and you'll never remove it entirely because a lot of this, I mean, the budget is a political spend, right? There's, um, there's always an ability to move things the way you want to. And also the thing is that every every party hopefully has an ideological view of what the good life could look like. And so therefore, you know, when they make decisions in the budget, it's it's telling you what they value. And so a, se- a sense of it is advertising their own ideological kind of, you know, it's like, hey, we believe in, in this, so therefore we're going to put more money behind it. And so, and then voters can judge. But, but I think what you're more digging into is specific, like, hey, I'm the MP for this area and I'm going to make sure that there's a huge amount of money that flows from the government into this area so I can prove to all these voters that if they vote for me, I'll give them, yeah. Yeah, and often money or just an influx of money is not is not the right solution. So, I mean, sugar 
a sugar hit always tastes nice, but it doesn't have a long-lasting effect. And so you, you do see this well-designed policy would have clear goals and objectives. And that, that wouldn't mean that a community doesn't have an option to, to get funding, and it wouldn't mean that a politician can't flavour that funding. But it is constraining it in some way, shape and form, just saying, hey, here's our long-term goal here, here's what we're trying to achieve, we think it's a, a viable spend. And you see quite a lot of this, actually, with, I mean, I'm sure that the Provincial Growth Fund is oversubscribed, for example. Um, we know that for a fact that, you know, they have $3 billion, and if every application was approved, you'd probably spend $45 billion. <laughs> um, so there is this sorting process, this this way of, yeah. of ensuring that, that there is some good spend. The, the sad part of that, though, I would say, and this is where the doom monger sort of comes out of it, is there should be an evaluation of this spend, um, and... I argued strongly, for example, that if you're going to put aside $10 million into something, $2 million of that really should be evaluation. And that seems an outrageous amount of money. Mm. But what that $2 million spend does is it ensures that that is actually an effective spend. Long term. Long term. And, and it can effectively free up some of that money if, if you're finding that it's not working. I want um, I definitely want to get back to the Provincial Growth Fund. But before we do, I kind of want to, uh, to peel back to... When you started in regional development, obviously beginning, you know, coming back from China, coming back to New Zealand, um, starting to look at what was actually going on in New Zealand, were there things that shocked you? What were the things that immediately popped up for you as like, whoa, we need to talk about this as a country? Yeah, that was a, that's really interesting, actually, because I came back and I did a lot of research and I'd worked on regional development sort of 20 years previously in the Department of Labor, looking at forestry issues on the East Coast. So sort of aware of, you know, regional development and did this wonderful document and we took it down and we, we started sharing that document with um, some you know government officials and some some researchers in Wellington and they all said hey this is fantastic work but the, you kind of missed the whole point which is context and this is why you know the local and living somewhere is important to understanding context because as soon as they kind of said what are you thinking about the you know aging population and regional stagnation and decline when it came to population I was like actually that is that is an important issue that we need to get into and so we basically went away and repurposed the entire framing of that paper around this singular issue which actually I think is one of the biggest driving forces um, sort of like it's a wave that is, is heading towards New Zealand and and we need to be starting to move towards understanding that wave and then also how we're going to swim through that wave because it, it will happen. Can you describe that wave in more detail? Yeah so at the moment most regions are growing their populations are still growing although when you unpick that growth a little bit what you see is you actually see an aging population so that the at the median age of the population is, is getting older and then if you jump out 30 years what you see is actually that growth is starting to either stop then the, the raw numbers in your community will kind of stagnate and some of them will start to decline as your rate of mortality is higher than your, your birth rate, for example. And, and migration, which is also in there, is not keeping up with that, that shift in birth versus death. So you'll see, um, you know, 75% of, roughly 75% of area units in New Zealand, which is sort of a geographic aggregation, mm -hmm. you'll, you'll see that they enter into a period where they're not growing, they're actually stagnating or declining. And the, the median age will be rising. So um, the worst case scenario is Thames Coromandel, where the median age will be 65 years old. Wow. So the, 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 the most common person you bump into on the street will be 65 years old. Mm. And, and that's a, a really important thing to understand. How do you pay for your pipes that need replacing when everybody now is on superannuation? Mm. You know, a, a proportion of your over 65s and a very high proportion in New Zealand still work. But they don't work full time. So there's this whole... And they're not going to be working for much longer. Yeah. So how do we maintain a community which is now um, much older than it is mm. and also not growing population-wise? The regions that are growing are, are the big cities, you know, your Auckland, your Christchurch, your, your Tauranga, Wellington. Yeah, well, I remember the day that we were about to release the paper and you sort of came to me very excitedly with this um, piece of paper with two maps of New Zealand that you'd sort of mm. gone, gone loose on with a pink pen. Um, and you sort of gone, well, this this is New Zealand right now. And it was a map of New Zealand with a couple of spots of pink on it. And these are the territorial areas that are currently in population stagnation or decline. And then you're like, and this is New Zealand in, I think it was 40 years. Yeah. And it was just New Zealand bright pink except for Christchurch, mm -hmm. uh, an area around Wellington, an area around Tauranga, 
Hamilton and Auckland. Yeah. Um, and, and Queenstown. And, and Queenstown. Yeah. yeah. And everything else. Oh, there's the, yeah. So the Golden Triangle yeah. between Auckland yeah. and um, and Waikato and Tauranga. Yeah. Uh, and then everything else was pink. And it was yeah. just like, and from then on, it was the pink map of doom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's quite a transformational moment for me, actually, was seeing that. And the great thing here is actually other countries are, are, are ahead of us. Mm. So if you look at Japan, um, you look at Italy, for example, a number of other countries are already experiencing this. And, and, and you are seeing something that we haven't faced yet in New Zealand, really, which is just, you know, decline and, and towns closing and ending and, and being no more. And, you know, a, a sort of a classic economics argument there is, well, just let it die. Mm-hmm. You know, just this is natural. This should happen. There, there will always be a measure of that. And the, and the other argument that we get to is, well, oh, your predictions are just wrong. That's not going to happen here. We're going to suddenly have a baby boom. Or, you know, we're wonderful. Lots of people will want to come and shift here. And, you know, and there's, there is always this measure of, I would say, stubbornness maybe. Actually, we don't like change at, at one level, especially when that change or that prediction is saying bad things are going to happen. Mm. We fight back. And I'd say actually harness that. That's actually useful energy for your community. But f- but look at the reality of that and say, well, hey, it's not looking good. So how can we be the very best community in decline that we can be? Yeah, because I, I want to dig into that a little bit because I think that's, as you know, for me, doing comms like I just imagine if I was you know working with someone who was running for mayor of some small town uh, and he was he or she was going up for re-election standing up on the thing and being like Topo vote for, vote me. for me we'll decline well together I yeah, mean like yeah, how yeah. do you together to forward to doom you <laughs> yeah, know. Yeah. I mean you know we, we love growth for whatever whatever it is we, we do live in a, in a consumer society we live in a, a society that's been shaped by capital ideas of of profit and growth and and it's very difficult to create a positive message that doesn't include growth. And that's why the, the title of your first paper was Growing Beyond Growth. How do we actually stay healthy and keep growing in, in different ways in our communities when the population itself is declining? Yeah, yeah. And, and population decline is not a predictor of health yeah. in a community. I mean, let's, let's reframe it a little bit because I, I, actually I like this area. Let's talk about pipes, though, because pipes are, is equally unsexy. Like you never get a person sitting up and saying, hey, vote for me and I'll fix all our pipes. Mm. That you didn't even know were a problem. Yeah, but look what's happened in Wellington, right? We're now seeing sludge and and all sorts of things being swept out into the sea because we haven't maintained what's underneath. Mm. We haven't maintained the very things that actually enable us to be healthy. Um, because they're just not sexy. No one wants to talk about pipes. But actually, also we just assume that it will be taken care of by virtue of of oh, it's their job. It's always worked. It's, we've always had growth. We've always had lots of babies. We've always had. But but in actual fact, sort of this creep, or you know, the pipes are deteriorating underneath our feet. We just don't know it. And you can you can become equally sort of have the veil pulled over your eyes when it comes to population and population growth and, and things like that. Just because you have always been in a, in a phase of growth doesn't mean that that will continue. Okay, so I'm I'm living in a small town in New Zealand and I want to keep living there. I want my family to keep living there. What do I, what do you, you know, I come to you, what do I, what do I try and hold my local representatives to account for? What are the things that I should be looking for that they are actively doing now to prepare for the future? You mean, you Certainly have a look at their long-term planning, and, and this is something we, we argued for a sort of an extension of long-term planning, that, that your long-term plan shouldn't be five years or ten years. You should be looking 50 years ahead. And then I would say, uh, how are you pivoting towards um, an ageing population? Or how are you pivoting towards pivoting your sort of infra- infrastructure towards what what could be in the future? So I'll give you an example. You know, A small town might have three schools all of which are sort of starting to struggle with their roles. And this is incredibly difficult to do because everybody loves their local school. But if you dig a little bit deeper, you might find that those three schools each have a school pool. And they're spending a lot of money maintaining three school pools. Might it not be better for the community to say, hey, well, we love our schools. We don't need to close them right now. We're not talking about closure, but let's. what, what would make that school better and what would it what, how could it spend its budget better? Well, maybe we have one really good pool and that frees up the, the extra money that the two schools are spending on on their pool and, and start investing in something else 
Um, it's about freeing up resources by creating something better. Yeah, so it's that sort of the status quo is not enough. It's time actually to start being creative. You see this um, overseas. In China, for example, they would have playgrounds built for elderly people. And I have never actually seen a playground built for elderly people in New Zealand, but it's it's literally just public use. Very slow swings. It is, yeah. It's gentle mobility assistance. Tauranga is pivoting a little bit towards this. You know, they've created that boardwalk along the waterfront that everybody likes. Mm-hmm. Why are they doing that? Well, part of that actually is that it's much easier for elderly people to walk along a boardwalk than, than sand. sand. Yeah. You know, there's less injuries, less falls. It means you can enjoy that that view for longer. It's It's wheelchair-friendly. It kind of makes sense, but it is, once again, thinking about things creatively because often the the push is, well, we need a playground. Well, actually, you might not need a playground for kids. You might need a playground for your 60-year-olds. Or not even if it's not a playground, areas where people can actually come, enjoy, socialise, be together, uh, which which adds to the life of what's going of on. The and community. Makes, and makes yeah. the community a more desirable place yeah. so that people don't, no, more people don't leave. Yeah, yeah. Well, one, and... Part of it is that return migration, actually, as well. That you know, what makes a healthy community over time is is this is is community itself. So so try and focus on building that as much as possible, and don't try always maintaining what you've got. Change and it's that moving beyond this sort of growth narrative. We often love growth narrative. Well, how can we, let's have a subdivision? A subdivision is a great solution because it brings in, creates wealth, and, and it's it, easy. It's easy. It's a it's a positive message. What you might actually need to do is say, actually, we don't want to have any more subdivisions. On the outskirts of town. On the outskirts of town. But what we need to do is rebuild what we've got in the centre of the city. Yeah, and repurpose. Yeah, so it's that that sense of, I mean, overseas, what you've seen is you've seen people where an area has started to go into decline and buildings have, have, have grown increasingly decrepit and they look they look awful, they're no longer safe. And so the solution is just to pull them down. And, and that is one solution that, that we have seen around the world. But what do you do with that space now? And, you know, sometimes you say, well, actually, we don't need a new development. What we need is we need people to start developing these these spaces inside our cities. Yeah, well, you see that like you've got, um, you know, cities around New Zealand and, or towns around New Zealand where you'll often see um, there being a, a, big, a big box retail development just outside the city. Um, and then over time, as you get a big box retail development, because all of the retailers love the extra space to be able to have a big new store that, that doesn't have to fit within the constraints of what's there. And then you'll have a subdivision that grows next to it. And before long, the entire sort of gravity of the town has actually moved out towards this new space and I remember you you talking quite specifically about kind of the banning of greenfields develop, developments in in small towns like say Greymouth or and, and actually saying no if, if you want to we, we would love you to come into our into our town um, and to set up shop and actually if you won't do it in the city or in in the central part of town um, because it's too expensive then how can we possibly you know, incentivize or give you, you know, give you a, a, a heritage grant to use a, an existing building and modify it or, or work around it. I mean, they're incredibly complex issues when you start talking about specifics, but it's also where the sort of the gold starts to come. I do think that one of the risks of sort of this ever thinking of, of growth is that what you do see is you see pockets of deprivation appearing. So if you create something new, that's flash and better over there. Often, what you see, especially overseas, we've seen in, in America, we've seen this where, um, and often in America, I hate to say it, but a lot of a little bit of white flight, people with a little bit more income um, start to move into that new area. And what you see is you see pockets of deprivation um, occurring where people who can't afford to move stay, mm. and then people who can't afford to be somewhere else start to move in. Mm. And, and now you've immediately created sort of a, a circumstance, I think, within your community that, that is not fruitful for long term. Oh, I mean, I think the perfect example of that is Detroit. I mean, my dad grew up in Detroit. Basically, you had the situation where it was an incredible, I mean, you had the race riots in 1960s in the center of the city. And that was also, you know, ground zero for the highways of America. You know, the, the automobile, the big three automobile companies in Detroit um, were incentivizing and, and lobbying government to create all these new highways so that people would buy cars to drive on them and of course highways that go directly into the heart of the city mean that people can take the car directly out of the heart of the city into the suburbs and so over the course of what 40 years 
the complete i mean you know there was a lot to do with the local government and stuff like that as well but just where detroit got to in the sort of in the early 2000s through to now it's starting to rejuvenate but yeah the city council just was not able to afford to run a city of that size when there weren't people who were actually earning money paying taxes paying rates all that sort of stuff and it is it's it is a sort of it it can get to this post-apocalyptic thing and seeing it on a city scale really demonstrates the core of the problem yeah and and the solutions though are are quite problematic because there's solutions which which sort of then easily spring to mind and and so what we've actually seen in, in england for example is with inner city areas that were quite depressed you saw that was a cheaper place to live and, and you saw communities inhabiting those spaces mm-hmm. and in a way of sort of rejuvenating that was to you know, a huge amount of government subsidies went into rejuvenation which unfortunately was then captured by those people and rather than saying hey that money what's the goal of this money is to rejuvenate with that money was actually captured by a lot of those people and then as as property prices rose they wouldn't let poorer people back in and so there's this sort of thing where and I'll I'll come back to that so there is this need to say what's the goals and objectives of what we're trying to achieve and and often it's easy for that spatial or that that type of policy uh, to be captured by people be it politicians or people in communities that are that are now having a lot of money spent in that community and sort of rejuvenation efforts Um, you always have to say well who who captures that money over time and how do we constrain that that capture, be it political or, or individual. So in those cases, for example, um, you know, those areas are heavily gentrified now and, and that, that sort of sense of the local and has, has kind of disappeared as property prices have risen. And a lot of that is simply because public money was spent. When you do spatial policy, when you when you allow for policy nuance, you really have to you have to be very careful because even advocates I, w- I would say I'm an advocate for spatial policy uh, there are a lot of risks around this that yeah. that actually we spend a lot of public money and and it just gets simply gets captured and wasted well, I mean and, and I think that moves perfectly into your second paper which was a year after growing beyond growth which was taking the right risks and saying essentially that you know actually and it used the quote from Shane Jones then and he said yeah like it's a bloody big risk yeah we agree it is a big risk but actually doing nothing and and not spending money and not saying that there is a challenge here that requires a lot of investment to make sure that we don't just end up with a bunch of dead communities and I think you know one of the things that you you had said quite early on that really captured me was that you know the thing is that the people who can afford to move out of these places do and the people who can't afford to move out of these places don't and then their lives just get worse and worse and worse and things get more and more desperate Um, and actually as a society that, you know, we should, you know, as, as New Zealanders, we, we sort of do have the sense of, oh, we want a fair go for everyone. And actually thinking about regional development in this way and spatial policy in this way is going, how can these places still thrive? Even if I don't live there, I want to make sure that, you know, a child growing up in, you know, I don't want to name a town <laughs> no, to be prejudicial, but a child growing up in a small town in New Zealand, you know, and we've seen stories like this where you've got, um, there was a series on midwives that was done last year and, you know, talking about midwives on the East Coast that, you know, they've got, there's one midwife serving an entire, and, you know, at that time my wife was pregnant and we were meeting regularly with our midwife and I was just like, I can't imagine you know, bringing a child into the world and and feeling so vulnerable and feeling like if this one midwife was off sick or if she was dealing with another child, you know, 20, 30 kilometers away, that we were just on our own. This is the human element and the human cost to not investing and not caring and not taking risks. Yeah, I mean, I think you've you've really hit the nail on the head. And especially for me, it's about a quality of opportunity and more so for children. So, you know, we don't... we. A parent deciding not to shift, making a choice to to stay in a community, sometimes there will be consequences for that and there will be a measure of having to live with your choices. Mm-hmm. However, children growing up in that situation, they, they didn't have a choice and they're now in a small town. Their, their education should not be, the opportunities around education shouldn't be less necessarily. Mm-hmm. There, there should be a sort of a minimum standard that we're saying, hey, below this is just not, mm-hmm. is not good enough. And actually, when if that means we have to invest a bit more, um, and, and you do see a measure of this starting to creep into government policy. So one thing I was encouraged about was when it came to health funding, for example, 
they, they sort of they divvy up the HBE health funding um, according to this really complicated formula. And it's only in the last sort of few years where they've started to include, um, you know, the age of your population as one of the variables that influences that. So we know that as people age, they experience more healthcare costs. So if your average age of your community was older, that wasn't being taken into account previously and now it is but there's something there around you know education funding you know every child gets the same amount of funding and then they have some top-ups and things like that I think we need to start thinking about the spatial effects of that that actually educating someone in the middle of on, on the east coast for example that there might be some more inherent costs that we just have to say as a society we're willing to pay because if we don't, you you will just see this this growth in in needs, mm. you know, people who are not in education, employment, or training, and you see quite a high correlation, for example, in the rate of needs and overall, you know, regional disadvantage. You are seeing children everywhere are not the same, mm. the opportunities that they have everywhere are not the same, and you'll never get equality of outcomes. But you can say, hey, let's focus on opportunity, um, you know, equality of opportunities that some of these these places. We'll just have to think differently. In Auckland, for example, not every school has a pool. Often a school will say, well, we're going to send our kids to the local pool, council pool. Mm. They all get on a bus and they drive for half an hour to get to the school pool. And then they all get on the bus and they go back again. You know, a rural community might not have a local school pool, but they might have a local council pool. And, and saying to a school, hey, the way you've been thinking about education and the way you're spending your money might need to change. Um you know, um, simply to get a better a better outcome. Um, and that might mean rethinking the way you fund things. After taking the right risks, what happened is obviously in the middle of all of your research on this, the Provincial Growth Fund was announced and that there was $3 billion, $3 billion on the table for the regions to actually have some smart, um, hopefully, some smart uh, investments um, to actually spur growth in the regions. And the next paper you uh, delivered was a risk worth taking, uh, which was an analysis of the first year of the operation of the Provincial Growth Fund to, to si sort of check, you know, how is this going? How is this spend? What, what, what is the rubric for deciding how this money is being spent? It would be good just to hear a little bit because I know that what you said at the beginning about, you know, untargeted money, money that is not necessarily being spent with an understanding of what the long-term goals of development and what could be successful. Can you give us a, just a brief rundown of where you think uh, the Provincial Growth Fund has been and, and where you think it needs to be improved? Yeah, I mean, I, I was incredibly, would I say surprised, not, not entirely surprised that the Provincial Growth Fund happened. We've seen similar schemes overseas. So when it was announced, I think actually, I think it's a good move. Like I actually support the idea of a provincial growth fund. Would I call it a growth fund? Not necessarily. Um, maybe a transition fund for some. But in essence, I think, is it a good idea? Probably, yes, it's a good idea to take some risks. The focus on growth and this, this ever, you know, how many jobs are we going to get for this money might be the wrong rubric. The other thing I think is that there's this 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 constraining the you know the three year political cycle. This is a three year tranche of money um, that has to be spent within three years, and we want our outcomes and goals to be within these three years. Actually, I think that's sort of the wrong focus. And and how would I reframe it? Well, I would say uh, forget three years. For example, three billion dollars is great, but don't stress about spending that in three years. Allocate the funding maybe over five or six or seven years. Once again. I mean, I, I just think it's better to do something right than just to spend money. Yeah, because I remember at the beginning, at the end of the first year, there was a lot of kind of sniffy coverage about it basically being like, oh, you know, how many, how much money has been spent and how many jobs have been created well? And look at how many of those jobs are just Wellington bureaucrats. So in some respects, I would say that is, is kind of poor analysis because what are you trying to achieve with this? We're not trying to achieve immediate change. It also highlights something that I think we really need to remember, especially coming into this current period of sort of economic uncertainty, where we think the government can just pull some levers and, and the world will be better. Actually, we know already from the Provincial Growth Fund that even if you've got $3 billion to spend right now, you can't spend it right now. Mm. Or you probably shouldn't spend it right now. What you should be doing is taking your time, working out what's the best spend, uh, how can we leverage this to get employment growth or to make healthy communities better. And so it's kind of... I look back and I kind of think, have we forgotten that lesson already? And, and 
I think as we move into this period where, you know, we've got this virus happening right now and everybody's like, hey, we need to spend money, we need to wage subsidies, we need this, we need that. And if we just pull the right levers, the government's going to smooth everything over. Well, actually, no, it's just not going to be possible. Provincial Growth Fund illustrates this. You know, to build a road, for example, can take a year's worth of planning before you even start digging in the ground, you know, and, and that's a lesson that we need to learn. And so I think... Like time-limited spending will will inevitably prioritise things that are ready to go right now. I just think if someone gave me $100,000 and said, you need to, you know, go to your Onehunga community and say, hey, I want to improve Onehunga, you know, um, let's let's spend this and it's got to be spent in the next year. Well, in the next 24 hours. Yeah, like, and, and, and who would I go to? Like, what, you know, what, what problems are, I mean, I know some of the problems in the area, but I don't necessarily know the ones that are the long-term drivers of inequality or, you know, what are the things that, you know, and sometimes they're going to be surprising things. And so the other side of this actually is, if you spend that money unwisely, if you waste that money, if it's seen as being too political, you're effectively burning up the social capital around that. So people are like, hey, provincial growth fund, good idea maybe, maybe we should do that. Oh, but actually it's just being wasted. Oh, now I don't want that and I don't want to take a risk anymore. And, and we don't want our government to be spending money in the regions because it's always going to be wasted. Yeah, and so you you really need to start thinking about the long term and, and pulling it that way right from the start. Uh, it's so important because there is only there's a window of opportunity for these things, and if if you if you spend it on the wrong thing, people just say, "Well, we don't want that again." Mm. Um, I, I do think there is some hope. Um, you know, some of the more recent announcements that have come out, and some of the way that those plans have been developed, you do see local communities starting to cooperate together in a number of regions where you know, any number of little local councils have got together to say, hey, here's our sort of region-wide strategy. And see, so all of this takes time. So you saw the previous government, for example, you know, developing these growth plans for the regions, you know, a great initiative, but they were they were created in a vacuum. It wasn't like the government was saying, here's $3 billion, go away and create a growth plan for your region. It was, hey, money's not really on the table, go away and think about how you want to develop as a region. If we were going to be offering you money. Well, no, they didn't even say that, right? It was basically just go away and think about how you could create growth for your community right. wonderful plan but when you when the next government comes along and says well we've got three billion dollars to spend it wasn't just a case of pulling up this plan that was built a year ago because that plan was built without money on the table it was, it was sort like, of what a, will you do if you have nothing yeah as opposed to hey actually if we were going to help you and you were going to co-fund what might you create? And that's quite a different discussion to have. And so it has taken, you know, two years for these some of these communities just to repurpose their thinking and to say, you know, if there was a little bit of money on the table, if the government was going to pony up half a million dollars and we were going to pony up half a million dollars, what would we what would we create? That's quite different to saying And if we were going to get together with the two councils that yes. sort of border us, and you know, because we we all are in an area that has a particular climate that's good for growing this sort of stuff, um, I remember your example about almost all of the the regional growth plans or the the plans that were in existence talked about manuka honey, um, and like oh we could leverage manuka honey, and it's just like well how many of those you know like you can't fund everyone to become the the expert in New Zealand about manuka honey. Well, and, and, you know, we're going to have a Manuka Honey Research Centre and someone else is going to have a Manuka Honey Research Centre <laughs> and another place will have a Manuka Honey Research Centre. And it's that sort of notion of actually how do you cooperate together to create something with with spillovers. And some difficult decisions obviously need to be made, um, but then the, the central government has a role in going, oh, we have five councils coming to us with a plan that says they're going to have a Manuka Honey Research Centre. We're only going to fund one. But how can we make sure that all of those regions actually have links into that so that they can leverage what's already going on? Well, in it's there? the same argument. We go back to the pools with the, the, the schools, right? You get five schools saying we're going to have a school pool. Actually, there is a, a coordination role here where someone has to say, oh, we've noticed that the five of you are going to have a pool each. Well, how about if one of you or something else has one really great pool that does all five of you and we spend half the money but get twice the outcome and make sure it's designed and situated on the property in such a way that it's easily accessed without disrupting the, the operations of school all that sort of stuff yeah i mean there's and that's that's that coordination and cooperation that can come from working together uh, from pooling funding yeah it's kind of it makes sense to me yeah, yeah.
I think that that's a really good spot to work onto your most recent paper because some of the stuff that comes out whenever you start talking about migration, um, you know, you'll hear people go, oh, well, you know, why don't we just, you know, if, if the regions are dying, why don't we just get all the migrants that are currently sort of stuffing up the pressing and stressing the infrastructure in Auckland, say, and causing a housing crisis, why don't we just say you can't move to New Zealand unless you're willing to move to the regions? Um, and I know that you sort of started talking a little bit about that and actually saying how that some some of that could be possible as a lever that region regional towns can pull. Um, but then moving through into talking about how you got into your most recent paper, Welcome That Works. Yeah, I guess we it's probably good to, to step back a bit because when you, as soon as you start talking about regional stagnation and decline when it comes to population growth, the immediate policy lever that comes to mind is, is migration. Can't we just open the tap and let some migrants in? It kind of makes sense at, at one. It's intuitive at one level, and in certain countries, this is this is their entire policy. Um, so you, you do see America, for example, saying we don't have a problem here because as long as there's somewhere in the world where people are, you know, are young, we can just open up the border and let some in, mm-hmm. and we'll probably open that up to to young, healthy, and skilled people even you know even better. Um, so at, at one level, there's an analysis of does this work for New Zealand? And uh, here I leaned heavily on Natalie Jackson's work, for example. Basically, no, this is not going to work for New Zealand. If, 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 if it was going to work for New Zealand, you'd be looking at a population of around 60 million people in New Zealand. And that then, you know, that, that begs a whole lot of other questions, right? So there's a whole lot of other questions. If, if we're going to try and wash ourselves of population stagnation and decline, the numbers of people we would have to, to literally invite to New Zealand is just enormous. And even then, Natalie Jackson argues, you wouldn't you wouldn't be getting rid of the ageing population. You would be solving the birthing thing. And, and the interesting analysis there is that once someone comes to New Zealand, while you know in their, their country overseas they might have a fertility rate of four or something like that, which you know every family has four kids, mm. they come to New Zealand, typically within one or two generations they've reverted to New Zealand's fertility rate. It's a phenomenon that happens and is re- replicated in any number of countries around the world yeah. that, you know, as someone becomes a New Zealander, they take on more of the attributes of what living here looks like. And part of that is the, the fertility rate that we have. We can't solve this at a national level with migration. That's just sort of something that's off the table. But there is, once again, this sort of um, local solutions for local problems. There is a way in which a community might say, hey, but we want migration to be part of our solution. It's not going to work everywhere, but potentially it could work here. And it will make us look different. We will have a different community than now. But it, it, it should be on the table for a local community. Once again, however, it's probably not going to look like what you think it looks like. So, you know, there is, and I, w- I would go so far as to say it's sort of the, the common statement, well, yeah, we, we can just make all the migrants move to Gore. And tell you them know. they can't leave. Yeah, yeah, like, well, I don't know, you'd put a fence around the town or something. It's like the, the wall to keep the migrants in. It's just this create, it's sort of this crazy unthought through solution it turns out that migrants are just as intelligent as everyone else and there's a reason why they want to live in Auckland and it's the same reasons that lots of New Zealanders want to live in Auckland is the amenities there it's a fantastic place to live it's a global node it's a well we hope it's a global node and there's a reason why lots of people want to go and live in Sydney for the same reason right because that is the global regional you know well maybe Melbourne but there's a sort of a fundamental piece of the picture here that we need to take account of is 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 how do you attract people to stay in a place that's not a node? Part of your work in that was looking at an example of a town in Canada called Morden. Can you just talk about what they've done? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's an interesting example, and it is an example which has both positives and negatives, but let's emphasise the positives at the moment. You know, Morden's a little town. It's 40,000 people, I think. It's, it's, so it's not a huge city. And where, do you know where is it in Canada? Oh, I would have to go and look at another map. It's not one of the big centres, right? You're talking about a smaller place. So Canada has this thing called a... Uh, provincial nomination scheme or program basically what it does is says hey here's our minimum standards for people that we want to shift to Canada like a point system kind of like yeah the Canadian system is very similar to New Zealand in that respect and they're oversubscribed just like New Zealand like there's this huge amount of people that meet the minimum standards so how do you decide of all the people that you've got in this pool how, how do you decide who to offer a place to and uh, what you see in Canada is them saying well why, why don't the provinces start to nominate some people and help us to to filter this great pool of people by, you know, someone is now in your in your little place. If you're happy with them and they want to live there, then you can say, hey, um, put these people at the front of the queue and they can help you through that, that national program, kind of fast track you through the application process. 
Um, and what that does is it gives the local community a bit of voice in actually, you know, of all the people that we've got that could move here, we've got this family, they want to live in our little town, it's a great fit, they're, they're working here, they're paying their taxes, we trust them, and then they've expressed an interest and they do want to live here. Well, why not let that person get to the front of the queue? And there's also um, measures and kind of rules around how they determine people who are overseas and want to apply to move there. And can you talk about kind of those? Yeah, so part of it is they, they, they will invite you to come and visit and they'll help part pay that a little, you know, and say, well, if you're really interested in moving here, come and see if it's a good fit. Come and live with us for a week and you can meet employers in town. We can talk about um, your family and their needs and things like that. They, they apply a cent- sort of they've got their own centre of gravity test. So, for example, if you have a relative living somewhere else in Canada, you can't fit under their scheme because because they know that you know families want to be together. And if yeah. you've got a family in a big city, and and you're coming in, you're highly likely to move to be with them in the end. So they are looking for people without connections somewhere else in Canada, and so that they know, will be their strongest. They connection. they will be the connection, yeah. And then the family members will come and join them. So that's a simple way of sort of filtering and saying, hey, you know, we want you to be part of our community. And, and we're expecting you to commit to us. And part of that is building your centre of gravity here. Mm. Uh, and that sense of commitment was really behind a lot of what was in your most recent paper, Welcome That Works, talking about welcoming policy. Can you kind of talk about, you know, that, that sort of sense of, um, you know, obviously our, our most recent paper talked about temporary migration and the fact that New Zealand has this big over-reliance on um, the temporary migration um, lever of, you know, someone coming here to work, but it's it's sort of mandated that they're only here to work for a certain amount of time and there's no, no real expectation that they will have a pathway to permanence after that. And, um, and actually going like that's really not a good um, recipe for having people come to New Zealand and actually investing in the communities that they're living in because they know that there's a time limit to that. And so what are the kind of changes that you've recommended that we make to our migration policy so that we have this sort of more of a social cohesion with people who come to work and live here? So a huge, huge topic. I think we're, to start this discussion off, I think we sort of need to once again take a step back and say, let's look at welcoming policy. What you hear people say is people need to invest in us or in actual fact, we need to flip that on its head and say we need to invest in the people in our midst. And so welcoming policy sort of flips that flips that matrix on its head and says we're not expecting these people to just become New Zealanders. We're expecting to help them become New Zealanders, um, whatever that means. And that, that definition will change over time. But I think there is a, a, a sort of a notion in welcoming policy that that says, um, you know, you can have the best settlement programs in the world. You can have all these fancy things where you're focusing on on helping a migrant to become a New Zealander. But if, if the community that they're entering into is not a welcoming community, it's not going to work, mm-hmm. you know. And that, that's a sort of a, a classic situation where over time someone moves into your community and, and they'll either feel welcomed or they won't. Um, and, and who makes them feel welcome? Well, the people who are already in that community. The first thing that welcoming policy does is it it basically flips that settlement matrix on its head and says the onus is not on this person to feel welcome. The onus is on us to make someone feel welcome. If we really want someone to reside and live in our local community, the onus is on us to make them feel welcome. There won't be 100%... It will, it's not going to be perfect, right? There will always be people that come and go. There's always going to be people who are xenophobic and you can't really yeah. you know, excise that completely from your community. Yeah. But there is this, with, with welcoming policy, really is this focus on the long term, which goes back to what are we trying to solve? We're trying to solve this long term population sort of issue. The way we've tended to do it recently, um, I would say for the last 15, 20 years, um, is through short term fixes. So when you look at migration statistics and you say, well, you know, we've got all these people coming to live in New Zealand, you know, and and you talk about Stats New Zealand, it's 90,000 or 70,000, it's come back from its peak at 90, back to 70,000, 70,000, oh, such a huge number of people coming to reside in our country. And in actual fact, all of those numbers are, are all really fudgy because when you look at the number of permanent residents that we create every year, 
the permanent resident visas, there's only about forty thousand to fifty thousand. We're not get, we're not. It's not this lolly scramble where anyone can come here and get a permanent residence visa. But what we have done is created this other thing called a temporary visa. And this temporary visa is one where we've got this labour market pressure. We can't find people to pick apples. We can't we can't find people to cut down trees or to plant trees specifically. So we say, well, let's give these. Let's let's just have a temporary visa, and this could be for one year, up to five years, actually. And some people, actually, I've I've saw in, in the press one person up to nine years on temporary visas, wow. where there is no expectation that this visa will be renewed. Like you are basically here at the behest of. So of, that, are they reapplying every year? Uh, well, it depends. Sometimes it's a two year or three year or four year, and they get a renewal for another year, and yeah. it's a bit messy. I mean, I lived for 11 years on a yearly visa renewal in China, where every year it was like, am I going to get a visa for another year? You you can't invest long term in a community when you're afraid that you're just going to be kicked out in a year's time. You are living there, but you are not investing in the same way. Those expectations of of how long will I be here for are really important when it comes to, do I get on the school board? You know, Do I invest in this community in the same way? And you see it in Australia, there's evidence from Australia, there's evidence from the UK or Canada specifically, where we do look at, or researchers look at, um, you know, the, the, the amount of investment that the community gives a migrant. This one case study of school teachers in, in rural Queensland actually was saying if the community knew that the school teacher was only going to be here for two years, they just didn't bother investing in that person. They're like, well, why would we bother to get to know them? Why would we bother to to invite them to to a pub on a Friday night and get to know their family? Because they're just going to leave anyway. And you see the same thing happening on the migrants end. And this is more evidence from Canada where someone says, hey, I'm just not going to be here long term. So, you know, I'll be here, I'll pay my taxes, but I'm, I'm not going to care about community issues well like i mean even to the to the extent of i'm not really going to invest a huge amount in necessarily learning um learning the language um to 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 a, to a really like high level because i'm not going to need it in and in yeah well why so let's let's i mean i love to go to the extreme sometimes but why <laughs> you know maori language is is a, a vital part of our of, of who we are yeah. but why would someone who's only here for two years start to learn maori mm. for example it's just not some, one of those considerations that, you, that you'd be thinking through. But if you're thinking about, well, living here long term, then yeah, you might. And, and you'd say, actually, I, I think that's valuable um, for understanding this country and understanding and I want my children to. And so you can imagine a school that's saying, well, you know, how much emphasis do we play, place on, on learning, learning Māori? Um, you know, if all the parents are saying yes, 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 then then there's a greater impetus for that community to learn. Whereas if you've got a whole lot of parents there who are only committed here for a couple of years, they're like, well, that's just a waste of time. Like my kids aren't going to need that in the future. Let's just use, actually let's work in the opposite direction and say no, don't do that. So there is this this I think if we focus on the long term, you start to get different solutions. While we focus on this band aid solution of you know let's have temporary visas, it's not serving us long and you know for the long term well. So part of what we advocated for in, in your paper is for a freeze on the current number of temporary visas that we're, we're offering, actually opening up pathways to permanence. And, and if there are workers that, you know, let's say a, a company is like a business is saying, hey, I, I really love this person. They are doing such an amazing job. I want to make it possible for them to actually live here and do this job. Um, and, and perhaps that starts messing around with the point system in terms of, you know, maybe that job isn't necessarily a, a super high skill or high wage job but if and I guess um, you had a conversation I remember you telling me about with someone where they talked about you know we either buy it or we build it um, so can you can you describe the difference between those two approaches and, and how we might which you think yeah we need to so do? it was interesting because we put the paper out for um, academic review and you know you immediately had two two kind of camps coming back and, and one was saying we just need to stop all migration and the other one was no we need more of this and, and it's this, sort of this interesting argument around buy it or build it. Do we do we build the skills we have or do we... we Within just, the people that we already have. Yeah, there. yeah. Or do we import the skills? And, and in actual fact, I think it's a, it's a measure of both. Like someone asked me, you know, should we just stop all temporary migration? I'm like, no, actually, there is a form of temporary migration which is healthy and beneficial for New Zealand. And it's actually beneficial for the people... That are, that are here. So some people, all they're interested in is being here for two years. All they want to do is is earn more money than they could back somewhere else, and they want to help their family somewhere else. And it, it's actually something that's useful for New Zealand as well. Well, it's kind of like the OE in London, you know, yeah, like how many yeah. of my friends went over to basically like earn enough to buy a house back here and then move back. Yeah. 
there's, but there is a, a point at which there's a tipping point, I think, where the flavour of that does a disservice for the country. And so I would say, hey, I think actually, I think we're at a point now where I would say enough is enough. Let's just say, hey, we've got 170,000 people now in the country on any one day on a temporary work visa. Let's just say, well, let's just put a lid on it there and say, that's the max we're going to have. Um, and if there's industries and locations, which I think are now, and I think there's evidence to support this, that are becoming dependent on temporary uh, work visas as a sort of a low-wage, low-skill solution to labour market pressures, I think we need to start applying some pressure there and saying, hey, maybe this isn't the best in the best interest of of you know New Zealand in the long term for you to keep working the same way that you have been working to so just the last to keep churning through workers you know we'll just this easy cheap solution is, is low wage workers from overseas talked about this the, a lot of these workers are vulnerable on multiple points they don't know local laws and legislation they don't they don't um, have the labor inspector on speed dial if something goes wrong mm. they don't know for example that the employer shouldn't take your your passport away and mm. and and you know effectively there's a, a notion of, of um, I would go so far as in some cases abuse going on where um, we need to rethink that, that solution. Most employers are not in that category. You know, we're not talking about every employer is bad at all. Um, and that's why I think there is a, is a place in New Zealand for, for temporary migration. Mm. But the way the system's currently done is that it leaves room for bad actors to actually abuse people. Well, I mean, and this is... This is part of how I view the world, that actually, um, you know, we need to enforce minimum standards. If we have collectively as a society have said that this is, this is where we stand in regards to, you know, people should get, should get their wages on time um, and they should get at least get this much per hour, then we need to be enforcing that. Um, and it would be really interesting, I haven't done it, but it would be interesting to go away and see how much money the government is spending on enforcement because we have seen this massive rise in temporary migration. And if there hasn't sort of been a massive rise in the money of money spent on enforcement, then you can say, well, what's going on here? Actually, we're setting some people up to fail. I mean, equally, I think there are labour market pressures out there. These are long-term pressures where, you know, if you go into some places and you go and have a meal and you wait forever because there's just not the wait, wait you know, the, the waiters or the waitresses around to, to bring you your food. You talk to the employer there and they're like, oh, just, you know, I can't get the people that I that I that I need or when they do get someone they can't stay here long term and so this is something that I think is is I mean I think it's a really interesting matrix because sometimes these people don't fit what a Wellington official thinks is the best person to be living in New Zealand long term but actually they're in our communities already they're living there they want to stay they're happy to be here they think it's a wonderful place to live but we've placed this really high benchmark for them to be to be living here long term and so I do think uh, this is what sort of brings me back to Morden a little bit. If there is someone in your community that's been living and working there, they want to reside there, and they're close, but they're not quite there. You know, surely a local community can say, well, actually, this is the person I want. Let's give them five extra points. Is five extra points the make or break? Sometimes it might be. Um, and maybe there should be more local voice in that, that point system to say, because they want to live in our community, because they are here, because they have invested, because their kids are learning Māori, because you know, because this is a good fit, they should there should be some recognition of that, and and that's a, a sort of a quid pro quo for being a welcoming community. Being welcoming costs money, and there should be some sort of benefits that come along with that. You know, because lots of communities will say, "Hey, we, this is not for us. We don't actually want to use this solution. We're not interested in being welcoming. Uh, we'll try other things." Um, for a community to be welcoming, actually, it's going to take an investment. Um, and so one of the payoffs for that investment would be when you do get people, you know, the government saying, well, is this person in a healthy community? Yes. Is this community welcoming them well? Yes. So maybe they should get some, some points recognition for that. We're out of time. If you want to read a bit more about Julian's papers, um, the recommendations, including um, offering civics courses and even um, down to offering scholarships for kids of migrants to be in sports on Saturdays, uh, which is a nice little surprising one that I really enjoyed. You can find Julian's work on our website uh, just under the economics tab at maxim.org.nz. Julian, the way we finish off this is always by asking our interviewee, our guest, um, what are they reading at the moment? So I know that you have quite a wide range of interests. So what have you been reading lately, Julian? I am actually quite a sci-fi fantasy 
kind of guy. So um, I won't bore you with that. Oh, so, no, please, please. No, no, I can't. A little bit like Gimli the Dwarf. I, I like a good um, an axe fight. But I would say if you want something that is going to really uh, push you forward and test your resolve, uh, but also is quite hilarious, and I would say that truthfully, I've been in fits and giggles every now and then, is uh, Edmund Burke's Reflections on the Revolution, which I would actually recast as Edmund Burke's Rants and Ravages on the Revolution. It's this interesting um, interesting place to start. So, I, I mean, I would say go for that. I don't think you're going to get, it's not a book you're going to read in a night. And in fact, if you're going to attempt it, just like lots of things in life, uh, maybe check out the wiki page first. To get a, the context. Yeah, to get the context, <laughs> to get a bit of the history, um, a useful starting point that then enables you to, to access. I mean, it's written a long time ago. The language is, is difficult. Well, what are you getting out of it? Oh, I would say... Um, Other than laughs? Yeah, I mean, actually quite a lot of fits and giggles. But um, I think also just this notion, I mean, there's a really interesting comment, for example, on innovation. And innovation is something that as an economist... I am sort of all the time we're talking about productivity and how New Zealand can be more innovative. And Edmund Burke has this wonderful quote where he basically says, you know, if, if all you can see is innovation, you've basically got the small mind. And it's just so countercultural to what to what we are seeing today. Just this this really interesting take on the world that is 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 quite you know it, it does have a lot of revelation um, into who we are in in society. So go for it. That's great. All right, well, if you'd like to hear more from us and keep up with the rest of our research and analysis of politics and policy in New Zealand, you can sign up on the homepage of our website to get our monthly forum email and invitations to future Maxim Institute events. You can also follow us on Facebook and check out videos on our YouTube channel. Just search Maxim Institute on any of those platforms. But from me and Julian, thanks for listening to the Maxim Institute podcast this month. You can search and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. From all of us at Maxim, Matewa, goodbye for now.